Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 18th, 2015. This is episode 1677 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday and I have got a good one for you. Like most Wednesdays, we do have an interview. I have a guy named Grant Schultz. I'm really excited to have him on the show. We're going to talk about farm-scale permaculture. How do you actually scale this stuff up and do it on a broad acre? And I know some of you guys are not that big into the permaculture thing or even the farming thing. I think you'll enjoy this uh, interview anyway because we're also going to talk a lot of business principles here today. In fact, I would say as much as we're going to talk about application of technique, we're going to talk as much or more about business principles and about things like Even though it's not on Grant's notes, I know how he acquired his property. We're going to talk about that because a lot of you guys, even if you're not a permaculture type person, you would like to own property. And uh, Grant has a pretty unique way that he did that. So we're going to talk about all that stuff and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is, maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive in the numbers 21 followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason.
Now for Bob Wells' Plant of the Week. Every week, Bob Wells Nursery brings us a plant or tree that we can grow in our own backyard of a perennial nature that will continue to come back over and over again and produce for us uh, for many years to come. And that really fits in with uh, having Grant Schultz on today. Today, i got a two for you uh, today, though. A mini royal and a royal lee. Those are cherries, mini royal and Royal Lee Cherry are adaptable from Zone 7 to 9. Those of you that are below Zone 7, you have tons of cherries you can grow. But these are cherries we can grow in the south, all the way down into Zone 9. Uh, again, they're adaptable from Zone 7 to 9. They live in the south. We have always wanted to grow cherries. Then these cherries are for you. You need to plant one of each for pollination. They require only 450 chill hours below 45 degrees a year. Mini Royal is a medium-sized, firm, and flavorful red cherry that is mainly used as a pollinator for Royal Lee and is very productive. Royal Lee is a heart-shaped cherry, early season favorite. Prized for its high productivity, excellent flavor, Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant and more at BobWellsNursery.com and take Jack's advice. Put this tree where it gets shade for about half the day. If you're in the South and you put these trees, even adapted to the South, cherries like a little bit of shade as it is, if you put them out in the blazing sun, you will cook them and burn them, especially if you are where the soils tend toward alkaline like the Black Prairie area of Texas. You want these guys to have shade for about half the day. If I had my choice and I say I could have half the shade in the morning or the afternoon, I would shade them in the afternoon and give them morning sun. They really love that. The ones here that have shade and morning sun are doing good. All the other ones... I killed them, and I killed trees left and right. That's how I find out what works, and I tell you so you don't have to. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1677. And uh, Alex Shrugged has these for us today, the Statute of Frauds and the Power of a Handshake. I have the Essentials of Enlightenment Philosophy, and I have Paris Just Became Cool and Terrible. Uh, I'm going to read the Statute of Frauds and the Power of a Handshake, because I have some interesting thoughts on that once I read you Alex's thoughts on it. The English Parliament has passed a law that all agreements, especially regarding real estate transactions, must be set down in writing, dated and signed in order to make it easier for courts to determine the rights of a plaintiff. This ends the honor system of using witnesses with presumed good character who are well known to the local community. When transactions spans oceans and are between people of different customs, they must be put down in writing so that a judge can have a baseline for determining the two parties had in mind in the first place. My take by Alex Shrugged. Well, transactions based on a handshake can work, but where a great deal of money is involved, the temptation to cheat can be overwhelming. I knew a man distantly who went through this. Chuck had an agreement with his boss to grow the business and become a partner if he is successful. The problem was that Chuck became too successful. His percentage of the partnership had grown to half a million dollars. Chuck's boss was sweating. His promise was based on a handshake, but it was too much money. Chuck could have taken his boss to court and won eventually, but instead Chuck had started a new business in competition with his old boss. His boss's old business contacts lost face in him and switched to Chuck. Chuck did not limit his vision to half a million dollars. He found a new pair of glasses. He retired a multimillionaire, and when he died, his friends laid him to rest with joy. His life had become a monument in some ways. I owe what I am today to that man, so my life has become his monument too. There's a couple things I, I wanted to read there. Um, number one, I think we should all strive to be that kind of person. That our lives exist in the lives of others as monuments. That people go forward and do and accomplish things and inspire others to do that because of our works. That's, that's a goal we should all set. And how far we go with it is up to us. But we should all have that goal. The other reason I want to talk about this is I like to give you guys business advice. And let me tell you something about business agreements. Put them in writing. Put them in writing because it's not always that one side got greedy or one side decided to renege and go back. We have relationships inside, for instance, our own business dealings. And Nick Ferguson and I are partners in Permaethos. But when Nick put out his course on plant propagation, he had a contract with Permaethos. It's his own company. Okay. Now, he's only a partner in the company. He's actually a minority partner uh, with, with myself and, and, and three other partners. So that's a little more complicated. But even though he's a partner in the company that the agreement is actually with, we put the agreement into writing. And the reason is this. It's not that any of us don't trust each other. It's that if we ever have a discrepancy, we can sit down and go back and say, what does the agreement say? Oh, it says that. We're done. 
when you loan money to a relative, have a written agreement. If they don't want to sign the written agreement, don't loan them or borrow the money from them. I'm serious. Agreements save friendships. Agreements save relationships. And in this case, that agreement might have saved a business. Even though Alex's friend Chuck built a huge, wonderful business, had his boss understood the agreement, agreed to the agreement, been bound by the agreement, and a willing participant in the agreement, together they may have built something bigger than either of them could have ever built alone. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, I want to remind you real quick about the Member Support Brigade. If you join that, you can help support the work we do uh, at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, to learn more, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service, First Responders like EMTs, Paramedics, and Firefighters. All do qualify for a discount if you email me before or not after you join. TSPC service discount in the uh, the email uh, sub like subject line. One sentence, tell me about your service, and send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. For everybody else to email me, if you want to tell me about something, yell at me, tell me I suck, I don't care, whatever it is, you can email me with TSPC in the subject line. Use the same email, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And uh, it really helps if you put in there like TSPC, article for Jack, comment for Jack, something like that. So I know what I'm looking at. It helps me filter and move faster. With that, I am excited about bringing our special guest on the line again. His name is Grant Schultz. He is the founder of Versaland, a farm that is really, really awesome and doing really awesome things. We're going to talk not just about farm-scale permaculture, but business principles, stacking business enterprises under a single enterprise, and doing a lot of other really cool things. With that, Grant, man, hey, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Man, I'm glad to have you on. I uh, got to meet you at PV2, and I didn't get to talk with you as much as I would have wanted to, but uh, you had some really great presentations out there. Really want the audience to get to know you, and I get a lot of questions about, can we really do permaculture broad scale? So... I think it's just awesome to have you on, but a lot of this audience has no idea who you are, and uh, I always try to get them to connect with the guests by telling us, how did you get into doing what you were doing? Were you a little kid that wanted to grow up and be a farmer, or did you take a wonky path to get where you are? Kind of what was the path that led you to where you are now? Um, all, all of the above on that one. Um, <laughs> I was I was a goofy kid who wanted to be a farmer when I was really young. Um, I had you know one set of grandparents that did farm. I was a generation removed from the farm. Um, but I grew up in the suburbs and I never really, you know, I didn't jive with it. Um, and I was still, you know, semi-connected to agriculture. Ended up going to Iowa State University for a degree in ag for college. And I mean, I hated it right away. I didn't really jive with the, the row crop. If you're really, really good at this curriculum, maybe you can get a job driving a sprayer for $15 an hour. And, um, just kind of, migrated, meandered through through that curriculum and, and ended up uh, realizing that I just had to work really hard and, and, and buy land my own way um, versus, um, you know, entering it into a conventional row crop paradigm. But the story is longer than that. But uh, eventually I got back to land uh, in my early 30s, and here I am now. So I, I, one of the things I heard you talk about at PB2 was all these, you know, we have all these young kids, I call them. I'm in my 40s now, so if you're 25, you're a kid. Uh, that want land. It's like the number one thing uh, is to get access to land. That's the, what they claim is their, their biggest hurdle. And I'm not saying it's not a hurdle. I remember being a broke 20-year-old. I really do. Um, but I saw a lot of kids kind of, again, kids being 20-somethings, sitting in your your, your presentation with, with Peter and being like, you know, we're going to find out how to do this and get a little uncomfortable when you actually explained what you did to make it happen. So could you give maybe the short version of how – you went from someone that didn't have land to someone that did have land. Sure. Um, so full disclosure, I spent a, a decade as a, as a licensed real estate broker, and I learned every in and out of a deal there is. So I was able to leverage those skills to get it done. And in, in this case, it was rather unconventional by many standards. But um, So I would saved up some money, and I was, I was in a position to be able to buy some land. Um, but an opportunity came along for a much larger parcel than I would have otherwise been able to afford. And the way we made it work was I had a, a long-term lease. So I signed a long-term lease. And as a part of that, there was an option to purchase. So it was a five-year lease with uh, an executed option to purchase the property. Um, so I knew that the price ahead of time was a predetermined strike price. 
So if I was able to plant trees and, and work hard and get infrastructure in place, the property would potentially be worth a little bit more than my strike price, and I can buy it you know, reasonably easily. If the entire economy collapses and the world declines in some drastic way, I don't. I'm not tied to the land. I don't. I don't have to follow through. I'm not. I wouldn't default on a mortgage. I would just walk away from a lease. So it's an asymmetrical option. Um, it was. It was mutually beneficial to all parties, and you know that's where we're at. Yeah, and I mean, I'd imagine that would really help with someone that's trying to get financing on a piece of property because you've got the strike price lower. You make the improvements. Then when you go to get financing on the land, it'll it'll appraise based on the improvements you've made. And that actually makes you a lower credit risk, too, to the lender because they have greater equity in the underlying property. Yep, exactly. But there was, like, another part of that I kind of wanted you to talk about, if you don't mind. So, like, I mentioned, like, out of PV2, some of these younger guys were a little squirming when they heard some of the sacrifices that were made. So, like, can you describe, like, your first year or two on the property? Did you move into a great big house that was all ready to go or anything like that? Yeah, no, not at all. So it was it was bare land, raw land, um, no power, no water, no well, no house, no barn, no buildings. I mean, just just literally bare land. Um, and I bought a twelve by twenty four FEMA mobile classroom trailer, um, and hauled it on site. So it's two hundred and forty eight square feet, five thousand bucks. Um, you know, at that point, I'm just living in a living in a classroom on the land. <laughs> Um, eventually got a well put in, um, got power brought to the property, but I mean, I'm speaking to you right now to this day, two and a half years in, in a 248 square foot, uh, trailer, you know, essentially a mobile home up on blocks. Um, and you know, I'm fine living raw. I'm fine living real close to the bone with, you know, barely minimal infrastructure. Um, but eventually it did cause a little bit of tension as far as, you know, there's the classic xenophobic neighbor who will find a way to screw with you because, you know, you're, you're not doing it the way they would. Yeah. Um, and even my landlords, I mean, you know, again, to this day, I'm still renting. Their perception of what a farm should look like and the way I'm making a farm functionally operate are very different. Um, so it causes a little bit of tension, but it's what, it's what I had to do to get it done, you know? And I think that's like the bigger thing I wanted to convey that, like, there's a lot of people out there that say they want this opportunity, but you were willing to put skin in the game and sacrifice in the game to get it done. And it's always the case that people look at the guy when he's 10, 15 years into it, made it work, has put in a, you know, a, a little bit better housing and stuff like that, and has the farm developed. They say, well, it must be nice. But a lot of times I think people don't realize what it takes to get it done. Yeah, yeah. So you use the term farm-scale permaculture for what you're doing. Can you talk about what that means, and, you know, you said that your farm doesn't look like what people around you think a farm is supposed to look like. What does your farm look like? And I know you're, like, in the heart of corn country in Iowa, so I can only imagine the, the disparity there. It's Yeah, it's pretty, the contrast is pretty drastic. Um, so, again, you're still emerging and still developing. Um, this farm is 145 acres. Uh, about 25-ish acres of it is kind of remnant timber. Um the balance, say 103 of it, if, if you're talking to the bank, they say there's 103 acres of the 145 is quote-unquote tillable. Um, and all of that was seeded over to an alfalfa grass pasture mix. Um, and then about 40 acres of that has been rather intensely planted over into a silvopasture system, which is, you know, if you look online, uh, 30-foot alley spacing, lots of rows of trees on contour, um, and then grazing the alleyways when able. Um, and in this case, we've got right now today we've got ducks, pigs, and sheep on site. Um, so we're grazing the alleyways, and I'm probably two to five years from seeing any significant harvest of any of the fruit crops as far as uh, trees. Um, but we're seeing things come on, like honeyberries and elderberries are already fruiting. Um, sea berries are just starting to fruit. You know, things like that. And you have a lot of enterprises like you mentioned these trees and i think that's like one of the places people get hung up when they're trying to figure out how to make a living farming like i'm going to plant this tree and i might get significant harvest enough to make any kind of a uh, a gross a gross mart or even a, a gross sale on it you know five seven years in so what you've done is you've stacked a lot of enterprises into your farm can you talk about all the enterprises that exist on your farm that could provide a full-time income sure um 
So day one had, when we did the, the forage seeding, I used oats as a nurse crop. And I pre-contracted those with the seed company so that I had an immediate sale. And it was a pretty pretty good price for them for oats. So early cash flows was just the actual grain off of the farm um, while converting the system. Um, I can can cut all the alleyway forage as hay if I don't want to graze it. And I can market that offsite as hay for an immediate cash flow. Um, you know, a year and a half ago, hay prices were really good. Now they're barely above what it costs to cut it. So there's, you know, obviously some commodity market exposure there with hay. Um, I didn't have any, any perimeter fencing or basically any exterior fencing at all on this, this property. So I couldn't, to this day, I can't effectively graze big ruminants. I can't have cattle here safely until I have a, a really good quality perimeter fence in place. So had that been in place, he certainly could be grazing animals right away, either custom grazing or, or grazing your own livestock. Um, do you have a true a tree nursery? We sell a lot of stuff, newfarmsupply.com. Um, and you know, I don't raise all of those trees. Some of those I buy in bulk from other, other nurseries and, and I'm able to, you know, get better pricing to people that they couldn't get direct if they're only buying a hundred trees. Um, but we also grow a lot of chestnuts on site, a lot of apple trees on site, a lot of pawpaws on site, a lot of persimmons on site, um, for nursery crops. Um, and, you know, it's the classic uh, criticism of, of permaculture sites is that the, they have workshops. And, yeah, we have – I mean, this year I had one workshop. We have one workshop a year. Um, oddly enough, when you serve really good food at those things, your margins aren't that high. Yeah. So I don't actually make that very much with the workshops, if anything at all. Um, but it, it's more of an outreach thing. It's like a – I mean, I've met so many cool people in the last three years doing workshops that it's like a, a tribe pollination kind of exercise, you know? Yeah, I do know, and I think that I, I am a little bit to the end of my rope where I don't even want to respond to people that complain about workshops at this point. We do them here. We did two this fall. Uh, I think in each of them, we had 120 man hours of prep before anybody got here. Um, when we really look at it, like we probably grossed fourteen to sixteen thousand dollars, but we probably profited three to five per workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, with you know between the and when I say 120 man owners, that's like my wife and I. So out of those two, you're talking 240 man hours. I can make a lot more money by the hour some other way than doing that, whether it's it's on my property or doing consulting or doing a myriad of other things. And I think a lot of people have this fantasy about workshops that you know I'll, I'll get all this wonderful stuff done and all, and it's it's never timed perfectly. It never is done exactly the way you would have done it if you could have given it your whole focus instead of worrying about students. It is an outreach, and it is, if you do make a little money off of it, great. But in the end, it is about spreading things and developing business connections and industry connections. It's not about, well, this is how I make my living. And I think anybody that really thinks it is probably hasn't done very many of them. And you're right on the good food. You know, we feed people meat. I've been to a lot of the permaculture things, and I guess if you feed everybody, you know, rice, rice, beans, and tofu, you <laughs> yeah. know, right? I mean, our food budget per workshop is about three thousand dollars, and and I don't think people get that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Eight nine dollar pound grass fed beef adds up in a hurry. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you know, we try to do it with big cuts of meat because it's just easier for as many people as we're talking about, you know, pork roasts and, and brisket and all. But when you're buying quality meat, it's expensive. It yep. really, really is. And then you still got to cook it. You still got to prepare it. You still got to make sure you serve it right. And it's a lot of work. And I'm not comp- – for the people who are just here, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, bitching or anything. I'm just saying that there's this segment. You know what I'm talking about, Grant, out there that's like, well, they make all their money with the workshops. It's like, man, you just go away. <laughs> well, and that, that brings up a, a larger point is that, you know, there's a lot of infighting and a lot of criticism. People are, you know, what's the, the enemy of great is good or something like that and vice versa. Yeah. Um, why are people so hung up on if someone is not 100%, you know, absolutely the epitome of permaculture? Um, you know, they're trying. We're trying. We're all trying. So support rather than nitpick. Well, and I, I think it's also interesting when you, the same kind of nitpicking thing with people to consult. And I'm like, you know, if people value what you do and what you know enough to hire you to consult, then it, 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 instead of being criticized for that, you should be like recognized for that. And I mean, people don't, like a guy might get a consulting job or two that, that's not really good at what he does and doesn't really bring value. But if a guy's getting consulting business consistently, to the point where most people that are getting it consistently turn some down or refer some out because they can't do it all. 
then clearly that value is being brought there. And I think it doesn't make sense to turn up your nose at income opportunities when you're bringing value to value. And I don't really understand the infighting with it other than I, I, I don't know. It's like a purist thing. And I, I think that we should all be working together to do the best that we can for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is your biggest moneymaker on the farm today? And, and how do you see that maybe changing five years from now? Um, today, well, in 2015, largest sales volume dollars is going to be the nursery, for sure, newfarmsupply.com. Um, so probably 80% of that is actual nursery stock, and maybe 20% is you know, auxiliary products, graphing. I mean, you have the, the top grafter, v-grafter now. Yep. Um, fence posts, tree guards, that kind of thing. Um, hay was my biggest cash flow last year. I mean, and that has changed dynamically when hay prices have declined. Hay prices track commodity corn pretty closely. Um, five years from now, um, you know, I don't know. I can plan for that as best I can, but you never know what'll come. Um, it realistically, it'll be, it'll be small fruits. I've got about a five acre planting of, of honeyberries, which is a significant volume for, for the Midwest. Um, and that should yield pretty heavily by that five-year timeline. Livestock is a big thing. Like I, this, this farm has so much diversity and so many ventures that I can't manage them all myself. I really can't. Um, so what I'm really trying to do is cultivate interns and, and you know partners on site that can come in and run an enterprise on their own, and I can provide a, a minimal amount of help or infrastructure, you know, and let them run it. So um, my hope is to get. Uh, an intern or someone else here who's able to scale up livestock, like a certain breed, and let them run that as their own venture, and I'll just be selling them standing forage, um, that kind of thing. Why don't you think more farms operate under a model like this in this day and age? I mean, Joel, Joel Salatin talks about this with fiefdoms and, and what have you, and you know we've done our best with, with our farm in West Virginia to try to encourage others to come up there and be what we call element partners, which is truly they take their stake and their ownership in it. And yeah, um, it sounds great on paper, but it doesn't happen very often. Sure. I think that people, it's inherently, it's it's natural for someone to want to own and have equity in what they're doing. So I'm adamant about wanting to own land. You know, I'm not going to become a surf leasing for my entire life. I, don't, I just have no interest in doing that. Um, so when you provide an opportunity for someone to, to, to do a venture like that, I'm well aware that the lifespan of that element partner venture is probably two to three years at best because they're going to either learn that they don't like it or they're going to learn that they love it and they're going to get good at it. And then they're going to go do it on their own somewhere in all, in all likelihood. Um, and you know, I, I have a lot of, uh, I don't like the, the, the term fiefdom. I don't like the, anything describing anyone as being a surf sure. in longevity. Um, but I, I'm aware that, it, you know, that, Hey, it's going to be two or three years and you're going to turn and burn. And that's the whole point of this is that they're going to, you're, you're making someone else better and they're going to go on and do something good for the world and good for themselves. And that's okay. Um, so I, you know, maybe you'll find someone who wants to stick around long-term, but, um, I'm prepared for that not to happen. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a hard time separating the farm from the farmland in their head. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we do, especially when you talk about something like grazing, uh, the farm isn't the land. The land is the location at which the, the farm does its business. Yep. So if I'm grazing animals, 90% or more of my infrastructure can be portable. Yep. So if I've got somebody that's willing to shepherd me through, and that's what I really want to do, and I have access to their land under favorable terms, it makes a lot of sense to do it. But people have a hard time getting past that that mental block, I don't want to be a surf, I want to be a landowner. And, I mean, I look at it a lot like you know, a lot of the skills that I use in business today to run my own businesses, I learned as an employee somewhere else. And if you don't make that sacrifice early in your life, you end up having to work a lot harder for it long term. And the type of thing we're talking about here is actually a much better deal than being an employee on some levels and a much worse deal on other levels. And, and what I mean by that is, if you're my employee, we have an agreed-upon wage, and as long as you don't completely suck, you know what you're getting paid, you go home, you're done. If you're working as an element partner running livestock, and there's a cow down in the field, it's your cow, it's not mine. Yep. Right? And that 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 has, I mean, people have a big stumbling block there with understanding that, and I think it's, like, the short answer for me is because it's damn hard. 
I mean, that's, that's really with the truth. It's damn hard to build a farm that way, but it seems like a better model. And it seems like the solution to the constant complaint is I can't get access to land. Well, and that's what I've said to all these people that tell me that, okay, well, I have a 110 acre farm in West Virginia. Uh, not only do we have the opportunity for element partnerships, if you bring us a solid business plan that needs some money, we'll put some money in it for you. And we've had exactly zero people really take it seriously and try to do something with it. Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. And there's a million ways to skin a cat. I mean, if I had enough cattle on this farm, at, you know, if it was at carrying capacity, the, the equity, the value of that cattle herd would be close to half of the what the land base is worth. Sure. I think that someone can gain equity in a farm business that is not necessarily owning land at the same time. I mean, mobile infrastructure, you know, raising livestock, exponential growth. Yeah, there's a million ways to skin a cat, but it's just finding a way that, that makes sense for everybody. To make it happen. I mean, if you look at Greg Judy, he owns very little land and a hell of a lot of cows. Yep. It's a yep. perfect he's example of that. Focused. I mean, he, he does own at least one farm, you know. Correct. Correct. He's got that long term, I'm always going to live here anyway, I think. But he yeah. has access to more forage all over the place, and he's got really favorable terms on it, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so there are a lot of ways to do this. Um what would you do differently designing a farm and planning out a silvo pasture system if if we rewound all the way back to the, the first day you showed up on your property? What would you change? Because I know that on my little three-acre property here, there's a lot I would change. Sure. I, w- I want to speak to one thing about those that are, that are seeking land access first, is that um, I spent 10 years you know, running a real estate brokerage property management firm, and I saw a lot of contracts and a lot of deals come my way. And you learn the ins and outs of and the elements of, of deal making that way. And if if you're just a person who wants to get on some land, go buy the the manual for your state for real estate licensing, and you will learn the definitions of terms and you will learn, you know, how an amortization schedule works. You will learn basic things like that. And once you understand how the the parts of the machine work, you can build the machine the way you want it to work. So I would just say you don't have to become a real estate agent. Just go get the little booklet or the manual and study for the test, and that will give you some knowledge base first. Um, so back to that. So what would I do differently on this farm? Um, I would have made it very clear uh, from the get-go to my landlords that, hey, this is a million-dollar farm without a single building on it. Um, I'm going to have to make some major sacrifices to get this done right. Um, so you're just going to have to be comfortable with the fact there might be a mobile home on the property. And you're going to have to be comfortable with the fact that someone has to live on the property to be able to take care of livestock. They shouldn't have to rent an apartment in town and drive 45 minutes round trip to check livestock every day. Sure. Um, I would have made that what I would thought would just be basically apparent. I would have made that very clear from day one. Um, tractors. So, I mean, I'm, I'm mechanically inclined that I had a lot of old tractors around and they're prone to break down and then you fix them and then you get them going again. Um, I had a tractor break down this spring at a very critical time for planting trees, and I was just busy, and I, I couldn't get around to it. And I had two really talented interns here, but they just their mechanical aptitude wasn't deep enough to go fix a tractor on their own. Um, and they're great guys, but it didn't didn't happen. And I probably lost not not kidding you ten thousand dollars in nursery stock. It just died um, because it had been pulled out, it had been dug to plant. And it didn't get back on the ground in time. I understand. I really do. Uh, so literally, I just sold. I had I had a really beautiful Deutz tractor, air cooled. It's like the Volkswagen Beetle of tractors. It's basically indestructible, but everything has a weak point every now and then. And, and in this case, it was just an electrical issue. Fixed it. I just sold it, and I actually went and bought a brand new Kubota. Zero um, percent financing through Kubota. I'm paying seven hundred eighty-one dollars a month for a really nice tractor. Um, and I couldn't have afforded that on day one, but as soon as that first thing happens and, and you know you lose the downtime and you lose that much nursery stock, it's a, it's a gamble I can't make in the future again. So, so yeah, uh, having reliable equipment is important. I'm a big proponent of, of the mobile farm. You know, like if you don't have a farm, go build a bunch of chicken tractors. Go get you know all your infrastructure ready to go and ready to roll, and then you can plop it on a new farm when you get it. Um. Yeah, little things like fence chargers, getting, getting all the bugs worked out as far as solar charging ahead of time versus after the fact. Um, but overall, as far as the actual design of the property, 
I feel really good about it. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with that process that we went through here, but um, it's it's smooth and it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I am uh, kind of a, a, a Latonian student. My my designs are generally more of a straight contour based, swell based design, more along the lines of what mostly people would use for what you'd call a farmstead or a homestead, a little bit smaller properties, lots of ponds and dams, things like that. So actually, like the key line concept is something that I'm still working on and still learning. I've been involved with one major install of that in conjunction with Mark Shepard. So if we talk a little bit about that, it'd be cool. I get the silvo pasture thing. I mean, I'm doing like what I call a micro silvo pasture right here on my little three-acre property. Uh, and we did all that with irrigation and everything because it's the only way we could make it happen where it is. And the 30-foot alleyways and all I get. But the, the key line thing is something, and you guys are bringing like GPS components into that with uh, with your installs and all. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I practice little K key line, right? I'm not uh, Australia approved, capital K, registered trademark key line, apparently. Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I think that you, you learned... Anecdotally, I understand that you learned when, when you were working with Mark on the Alcoa project is that the idea of a drive-through pond and the purpose of it. Yep. You don't want to have a hairpin turn randomly on a site to do a real swale. So it makes sense to be able to engineer these little structures to, to get around these things, right? Yep. And they work and they're fantastic. And Mark has done a good job on iterating, uh, you know, key line concepts for functional landscapes. Um, and the only thing I can add to that is by using this, this RTK GPS technology that is with a UAV, you know, a, a drone, modeling an entire property, flying it, getting a, a topo map made, getting uh, an aerial photograph made, hyper accurate within one centimeter from space, repeatable. You can, you can see those issues where you might have to put a key point pond in far ahead of time versus sort of bumbling around with a laser level on site. And you can do it either way, but it's just so much faster and so much more efficient for broad acre, for, you know, 10 acres plus to do it that way. Um, it's just, it's fantastic and it makes things a lot more inexpensive and a lot more functional long term. Um, so yeah, we fly, we fly properties now with the Trimble UX5 UAV. It's got LiDAR on it that has photogrammetry on it. It's got an RTK GPS unit. Um, so you can do topographic maps really inexpensively, really accurate. And, and model everything on the computer on, on CAD, and then install it from there, either you know by hand or with big machinery bulldozers or tractors. So I think that your Alcoa project, we really could have done some cool things with that. Yeah, you know? I think we could have had the maybe the time and the resources been there to do it. I think it was like we had to get in and do it within the time that the customer wanted it done, and we didn't. Yep. I don't know if Mark had access to that. I didn't. So sure. Yeah. You know. Um, could you talk a little bit about Silvo Pasture? Because that's, I mean, I've, I've talked about it on the show from time to time, but there's probably a lot of people out there thinking, what does that mean? Just without even worrying about the, 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 the key line like components to it, but just what it's all about and why somebody would do it and how it works and how it develops over time. Sure. Yeah. Just imagine, uh, imagine the highway. You know, you're, you're driving down the highway, there's two lanes, and then there's uh, the ditch on the side. So if the highway is your forage, consider that grass or clover, alfalfa, something like that, combination of all of them, ideally. And then, you know, what's on the side of the road? That's trees. That's a fruit crop. That's uh, that's shade. So, you know, the silvo pasture in my, you know, iteration is is an alley cropping silvo pasture where, you know, you're grazing the alleys, or maybe one year you're plowing up the alfalfa and you're planting a, a crop for a year and then going back to pasture there. And then in the in the ditch, we'll call it, um, that's shade for livestock. So you're not bringing in an $18,000 shade structure on wheels. Um, that's additional forage. Maybe there's some mulberries in there. And when the forage is, when you have a drought situation, uh, livestock can go graze the forage directly off of the trees. Um, they might drop the mulberries. They might drop fruit on the ground as further browse for, for livestock. But... It's the intentional integration of both trees and pasture, and that's civil pasture. Can you talk about a little bit about the spacing and the reasoning behind the spacing? Sure. Um, alley widths can be can be varied depending on your your purpose and your intent. Um, my primary purpose, you know, where I'm at here, I'm I'm pretty close to direct markets, so I can earn way more money per acre 
because again, I'm very much a libertarian capitalist out to earn as much money as I can per acre. I can earn more money per acre raising fruit crops um, than I can grazing livestock. Um, so 30 foot canopy for fruit trees is about ideal at, at maturation for the, the size trees that I'm growing. So I just wanted to have as many trees as I possibly could on about a 30 foot spacing. And then that alleyway in between is, is for grazing livestock. You know, if you're, if you're in the middle of Kansas and you are, your focus is really on, you know, grazing red Angus, you might want to have a 120 foot alley spacing just because you want to focus more on getting that forage grazed. And then the, the trees are the only purpose for them really is, is shade. Um, so, you know, what depends on your goals. I think it's a lot. There's a lot of things at play. Like we have form driving function and function driving form in a lot of designs. So, for instance, here our little mini civil uh, pasture, which is really about a one acre strip, um, wasn't even done. It wasn't off contour bad, but it wasn't really on contour because I had a totally different goal. So my goal was when I'm done with this, I still need to be, have the ability to have students come here and park vehicles. So I did mine following the basic contours, but pretty much straight line on 38-foot spacings so I could put three cars between each row and not completely screw everything up, and it would be obvious to a student where they're supposed to park. Yeah. Right? And, and have them park out on my fence line. So, like, that's like a totally different reason to do something like that. If you were doing something like pecan as a major overstory tree, well, a mature pecan, I mean, if you think about the canopy there, you know, you, you might be out at 60 to 80 feet. So everything that you make – so the, the whole point that I was trying to, like, get us to together is the whole point of civil pasture, it's, it's, it's a savanna mimic, right? We've got these trees, and we've got glades of pasture in between them. And, and the, the, the only limit is your imagination and common sense. Like, you wouldn't want to go really, really wide if you were doing what you want to do, which is small fruits, because your, your profit initiative is totally skewed – the wrong direction. If you were doing 80 foot alleys, how much wasted production do you have there? Yep. Right. Yeah. But if you're doing, if, if you're eventually going to success in the pecan, you might even do short alleys like you did. They, the, the center alleys just might, you know, get bigger long term because that pecan tree's got 12 years before it's really large and it's got 20 years before it's huge. Yep. So I've even seen designs where there's a plan that at, at 15 years in, we take this this middle alley out. Yep, exactly. You know, but it just goes away and it becomes it becomes pasture again. Yep. Like I my my spacing is way 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 too close in the row, you know, typically 5 feet apart. And that those trees are never going to be able to be that close together long term ever. But it's an in situ nursery too, so I can come in with a tree spade and dig them out when they're 5 10 years old and have a big ass ready to fruit tree to sell or replant elsewhere on the property. Correct. It didn't cost me, you know, more than a couple bucks more to have those extra trees there, you know? I think that's something that people, once you get beyond just even a couple acres, need to start getting in their heads is that, and, you know, Lawton says the forest is the teacher, and, and I always go back to him because he's the guy I learned most of what I know from. And when you walk through a young forest, the trees, you can barely fit between them. Yeah. And yeah. eventually they sort themselves out. Well, what we do is we accelerate that, and we sort them out for themselves. But if we always start out, you know, we plant apple trees at a, a 30-foot center, let's say, or a 20-foot center. Um, well, there's a long time between those trees getting that big and and where we start at, and all of that is wasted. And then all of that ground is open to the sun. It's baking. Um, we're not feeding soil organisms unless we're putting something else in there. And people have a hard time thinking that way because you know what they do, Grant, they get the rain tree catalog or whatever, and they look at trees that are $30, $40 a tree. And when you start planting larger acreages, you have to think differently. Yep. Well, you, yeah, you don't necessarily have to think differently, but the, when you pay that kind of pricing, you have to think differently. That's why I recommend everyone goes to, to newfarmsupply.com and doesn't pay those high prices. Can you talk about, like, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what can you get there? What some of your some of your offerings that you have? And, and you know, if somebody wants to plant an acre, what, what, what type of thing could they look at? Um, sure. So my site, you know, it, it, I follow the, the Stefan Sivkoviak, uh, trios in a lot of ways. And, and, um, I looked to Stefan for developing that in many ways. Um, things like Mazard cherry trees. I mean, they're the predominant rootstock for, for any sort of cherry tree. Um, you can, it, it'll fruit on its own ungrafted. It's like the Antonovka apple of cherries. If you don't touch it at all, it'll still produce cherries. Um, 
So Mazur cherry and a, and a larger apple rootstock like a P18 or an Antonovka, um, and then a chestnut tree, something like that. Um, you know, my pricing is like three to six dollars a tree when you start buying those in bulk, and that's that's one tenth of a three dollar tree at Rain Tree, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at your Mazur cherries, a bundle of a hundred for six bucks. Uh, not not for the bundle for anybody goes and falls out of seat, but six bucks a tree, so six hundred dollars roughly for for a hundred trees. Yeah, and those are those are five or six foot tall, you know, half inch to three eighths inch diameter. I mean, they're ready to go. Um, so things like that. Um, but again, what are your goals? I always say that you know, hey, I'm I was really hustling and 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 scraping by trying to get a lot of trees in the ground for as little money as I could. If you're you know later on in life and you've got some means or you've got some savings and, and you realize you come to this permaculture concept later in life and you want to accelerate your growth, by all means, go buy a two-year-old pre-grafted tree for 15 or 30 or 50 bucks. And if you can justify it, you know, you don't want to learn how to graft and you want to have something to look at right away, just go buy the nice tree and stick it in the ground. Um, if, if you want to do that on 100 acres or 10 acres, that's going to get real expensive. But if you're just on a, a couple-acre site and you want to see some immediate returns, by all means, just go go buy the tree. See, I think you can even hybrid that too, though, right? So, like, we're talking about how this stuff successes over time. And take those those trees that are going to be your premium trees, put them at their mature spacings, and plug these low-cost trees in between those spaces. Let them produce for you up to that point. Maybe sell some of them off, get seed materials, establish your own nursery. I mean, there's That's so much that can be done with that space because I don't care if the tree's three years old or four years old. It still is nowhere near it, its its canopy size unless you're going to – if you're going to orchard manage it where you're going to have trees on six, eight-foot centers, that's different. But if you're going to do like a silvo pasture model, you're not going to probably have apple trees at, you know, uh, an eight-foot canopy. Yep, yep. And another thing, too, for those moving on to new sites is that pretty much every acreage or even urban house that I've seen here in the Midwest has got a crab apple somewhere. And, you know, you might as well just graft – Go get some cyanwood off of a dormant apple tree in the wintertime and graft over that crab apple into what you want, and you literally jump ahead seven years. Um, so yeah, something like that too. Absolutely. Um, and you you do uh, you do seeds too, don't you? Like like chestnuts for seed and, and what have you? Yep, yep, yep. We're about about done with that for the year here. We've got a, a little bit left to sell, but um, chestnut seed you've got to stratify in the refrigerator over the winter. So you've got to keep it, you know, right around 40 degrees. You've got to have it in semi-moist peat moss, and you've got to, you know, keep it in a Ziploc bag in the fridge over the winter. And then, you know, you'll see it start to stratify, and then February or March will roll around, and the, the radical, that initial root, will pop out of the seed, and then it's time to plant them out. Um, but it's an inexpensive way to, to, you know, number one, learn the systems of, of chestnut propagation, but you can get a tree reasonably inexpensively, too, that way, so... Chestnuts are, you know, 40 seeds to the pound approximately. So you can get a, a chestnut tree grown for 35 cents instead of paying $3 or, or $30 for it. I ordered some garlic from you, and you were cool, and you sent me the grafting tool with it. And you also sent me some chestnuts. And I, I went to your website and looked at the chestnuts on your site, and my bag said something on it that said Sleeping Giant. Is that, like, special or secret or something right now? It's, I mean, it's, it's special and secret, yeah. So Sleeping Giant is a... It's a three-way hybrid. It's an American chestnut uh, crossed with a Japanese and Chinese chestnut. Wow. So the cool thing about Sleeping Giant, and it was named that because it looked it looks very similar to the growth habit of an American chestnut. Um, you know, single central leader, and they grow pretty fast, and um, they look really beautiful. But they also produce nut, a nut yield that's almost as heavy as the highest-yielding Chinese chestnut. Wow. So, um, you know, Chinese chestnuts typically are like multi-stemmed and they're kind of bushy habit almost. So Sleeping Giant's a really cool tree. So the, yeah, the nuts that you have is a really fancy hybrid chestnut tree. Awesome. Well, thank you for that because like, I didn't expect that. And like, you were also, like, you were selling seed garlic and all you know, that Civo pasture, we just plunked seven pounds of, of seed garlic into about 300 foot a row out there. Uh, so that should be a, a pretty interesting, uh, uh, harvest next fall. Uh, but that was like another example. Like I'm sure that you were able to sell that garlic for more by selling it as seed garlic than than just selling it off as as a food crop. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, and not all garlic when you harvest grades out at seed size. I mean, you basically only have to sell the the largest bulbs as seed grade. 
but in my area, you know, regular run-of-the-mill hardneck organic garlic is seven or eight dollars a pound. But you know, a rare heirloom. You, you got bogus here, I think. Yep. Um, you know, the beautiful, colorful hardneck garlics of a seed grade are fifteen to twenty-five dollars a pound. You know, um, and that's a good yield. And, and the other thing too is that there's so much demand for this kind of stuff. Like in this, where you're at, a uh, Creole garlic is, is is a better hot weather garlic. Sure. Um, and those are pretty colorful too. The bulbs aren't as big, really, but they're they they do well in the heat every year. Um, it's it's kind of place specific, so you have to find a, a variety adapted to your area, and people pay for for aesthetics. So finding anything that's not a silver skin garlic that you see at the grocery store grown in you know Gilroy, California, people are willing to experiment with it, which is cool. I mean, I'm the guy that ever, whenever I'm at a store, if they do happen to have garlic that's got any color in it. I buy some and throw it in the ground somewhere. We'll yeah. see what happens. I mean, and I mean, believe it or not, I found like this fantastic. I don't, even, I still don't know exactly what variety it is. I haven't been able to figure it out. Probably came from China, but it was like a really deep purple. And I found it at a Walmart. And I was like, well, it might be treated with something so it won't sprout well or whatever. But I bought it. I threw it in some beds I had in my place up in Arkansas and it just blew up. And it's like, I feel like people should experiment with stuff like that. Like, don't be afraid of it because of where it came from. The worst thing it's going to do is not grow. Um, don't go throwing glyphosate on your land or anything like that. But, you know, where, where you get a seed from, plant anything, see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the, like, are you doing much, you know, direct marketing right now? I mean, I, I noticed, like, you sold that garlic on Facebook. How, how are you gaining customers? Yeah, uh, so I, I used to be a pretty big garlic grower. I used to do several thousand pounds a year. Um, and garlic has a, has a virus that goes around in cycles, kind of like cicadas almost. It's called Aster Yellows or Phytoplasma. And I was at scale doing garlic prior to having this land. I was renting uh, eight acres. And um, the virus is coming around, and I was like, man, I don't want to have my entire garlic crop get wiped out in a, in a catastrophic loss. So I, I got out of the game. I just sold what I had, and, and I you know, downsized incredibly. And I really love garlic, and I'm getting back into it, so I'm starting to grow my, my, my seed stock size again. Um, and this year between my neighbor and I, we'll do probably 250 pounds together, which is not a lot. It's really not. Um, but it, I'm so stressed with time. It just got to be late in the season. So I, I sold a little bit of garlic on Facebook this year just because I didn't have time to get it all on the ground. I mean, that was the stuff that I was going to plant. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in the future, I'll probably just direct market it, um, you know, throw it on your farm supply or just take it to the farmer's market. I, I kind of meant like to, in, your, in totality with that question, not just garlic. Like, are you know how how you're marketing everything you do? Sure. Uh, well, again, a lot of my fruit crops are, are pre yield. Hay is pretty easy to sell. I, I try and sell it uh, locally as I can, just you know word of mouth. Um, if I get a lot of it, I'll send it to an auction, which is ridiculous. But a semi will come down, and I'll load up a semi, and it'll go away. Um, you know, like nursery stock, I used to do a lot of direct sales at the farmer's market, but it's just a lot of work for very little return because you've got to convince everyone that this chestnut tree is fantastic and they need it in their yard. Yeah. Put it online, and I've got unlimited demand for it. Um, so I like a little bit of local outreach. What I've started doing now is just I'll just give away stuff locally to those that want it. They can see the value in it. Um, we're doing some discreet plantings in some city parks, chestnuts and pawpaws mm. of uh direct action, uh, whatever you want to call it, transition town. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm selling to those that want it nationwide, and I'm just getting on the ground where I can locally. See, I think that's a good model for a lot of people to emulate because a lot of the stuff we do is got somewhat of a time horizon until it becomes, you know, productive to the point where it really starts to first pay for itself and then actually be productive. But a lot of the things that we do are also shippable, and that opens up a much broader market, and then you find out that the niche you have is actually like a hyper niche. It, it's there's so little of it compared to the actual demand. As soon as people realize that it's even available, so like you know, in in my city, for instance, plumbing would be a niche. In, in the world, plumbing's not a niche. Plumbing's just a thing. But you know, we we sell, for example. You know, pastured duck eggs that are soy-free, GMO-free fed, and all the other things we do with them. If we ship that, we could probably charge significantly more 
and we could probably find a huge market for it. In my case, we are production limited. Like I, I have eggs sold before the duck lays them, so I'm I'm done. But I think that like if it ships, then you should at least consider that because there's almost this. Uh, we were talking about some of the, the infighting, like this resistance to shipping, right? And my thing is, if I have a customer somewhere and I can ethically and morally get that product to them for a fair price. I don't care where they are. I'm not going to discriminate against them because they're in California or Pennsylvania. Absolutely, I agree. Polar Polar Tech is a is a manufacturer of uh, insulated shipping boxes for for meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have this conversation with lots of people. Like they're they're raising grass fed beef in the middle of nowhere, and they're concerned that they're four hours from their markets. And it's just like you're raising amazing stuff. Just put it on the web and ship it. You know, it's. It, you're not violating ethics by doing that. By all means, it's just, you know, you're getting good meat to good people that might be a little bit farther away that, that can't get to it, you know, via car. So, yeah. And I think what people don't realize, I can't think of the company right now, but there's a company that, like, is the beef shipping company. They ship beef. You know, you get a monthly subscription of, of Kansas City strip steaks and, and whatnot from them. And all of a sudden, you're not competing with the guy down the road with some cows. You're competing with that company, and that company's selling at like an Uber premium. Yep. So, so now you're you're in a totally different market to a totally different class of customer with a totally different income level that's willing to pay higher margins because your beef is going to come from the middle of Jabip, Iowa, or whatever, to his front door and be fresh, and he can look on your site and see a picture of a cow grazing one day and have the beef in front of him, you know, a week later. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that like we're foolish to not exploit that. Um, and I don't mean exploit that in a negative way. I mean exploit it in a very positive way. You mentioned you're a libertarian capitalist. We'll get along. So am I. Um, and and I, I think there's like this other like hesitancy there. Like I hear people saying, well, I'm worried about selling to poor people. Why don't you build your enterprise and give poor people a job? That, that's kind of my, my you know, canned response to that. Sure. Yeah. Or it, yeah. Or, or give a portion of it to the food bank directly at no sure. cost. Yeah. But we have to be financially viable. If we're not financially viable, I think it was Mark that said at PV2 in his keynote, like, if you have a nonprofit before you have a profitable enterprise, you have a professional begging organization. That's, that's what you do. You beg for a living. And that that's just not sustainable. Sooner or later, you run out of people to beg from. And we have to be able to produce significant surplus to the point of profit so that we can actually be philanthropic. I mean, the most philanthropic people I know are quite wealthy. Yeah. Yep. So what are what are some of the other things like you guys do? You do you do services and stuff too? Um yeah, so the, like the the UAV thing. Um, I'm headed to Hawaii in two weeks to do a flight. Um, we're we're flying a farm. We're gonna get some photogrammetry done. We'll have an aerial photograph. We'll have aerial video. We'll do an elevation. We'll have a topo map generated, and then we're gonna design a key line ish arrangement for a coffee plantation, um, perhaps a, a pond or two. And then we're going to be able to give that back to the producer so she can uh, plant a bunch of, of coffee out there in a resilient way long term. Um, this kind of this time of year, we're doing a lot of traveling, doing that sort of services. Um, yeah, that's workshop, one workshop a year, farm skill permaculture uh, next fall. Just confirmed uh, Neil Spackman will be here um, late September, early October of next year. He's doing amazing stuff on thousands of acres in Saudi Arabia right now as far as dry land restoration. Um, we've got 75 gallons of cider going. We might uh, might start a cidery in the next year. We'll see. Um, yeah. And for, for Jack and for you, it's today is Wednesday, November 18th. I will put the code uh, TSP, the checkout code TSP on New Farm Supply, 25% off, and I will let it go a week. Oh, cool. From the 18th to the 25th, code TSP, 25% off. I will probably lose money on every sale. I'll, I'll make sure it's in the show notes so you can lose lots of money. <laughs> I never want people to lose money, but if that's what you want to do, we'll see what we can do for you. Um, I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's pretty awesome to see what you're doing. I'm sitting on your website right now on the uh, FarmScale uh, Permaculture Workshop, and I'm looking at one of your fields that's installed, and I think that it addresses one of the concerns I think a lot of people have that they think like permaculture is all messy. Right? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but different designs fit into different objectives. And when you look at this type of design, it's, it's very artistic. 
I can only imagine what it's going to look like 10 years from now. But even now, you know, with the tree tubes out protecting the trees, and it makes the lines show up. It's a very artistic level of design, but yet it's like to me it's like sculpting. So people look at like some of the swell designs I've done and go, "Well, how'd you come up with that?" I didn't. That's the way the land moves. Mm-hmm. And and when you reveal what the land's doing, it's it's often quite beautiful. Yep. Yeah. Form follows function. Function drives design. Yeah. So uh, I think we've given out your site a few times now, but how can we? Uh, how can people learn more about what you're doing? Find out about your workshops, all that stuff. Uh, Versaland.com is the website for the farm. Um, I run an off-neglected listserv for grant opportunities and funding opportunities with our friends Uncle Sam and others called freemoneyforfarmers.com. And my favorite, the the nursery, is newfarmsupply.com for permaculture tools and trees. And then, yeah, like like I said, code, code TSP, 25% off for a week. I'll make sure we... Uh... We try to pound down your money losing door with that. Um, <laughs> and I do appreciate you being with us on the show today, Grant. Thanks, Jack. And uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. I have uh, been playing different music at the end of the show. Uh, today, I wanted to play something which is just a cool, feel good song, but yet kind of typified the, the work that, that people like Grant, I, and many others are doing. Uh, so I dusted off some really old stuff with Bob Seeger. And uh, we're going to play Against the Wind. And I think sometimes we feel like. Uh, that's what we're doing in, in, in the world of uh, regenerative and restorative agriculture, permaculture, et cetera, that we're running against the wind. But I think if we keep doing it long enough, sooner or later, we'll find ourselves running indeed with the wind. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico, along with Grant Schultz today, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seems like yesterday, but it was long ago. She was a queen of my night There in the darkness With the radio Playing low end And the secrets that we share The mountains that we move Caught like a wildfire Out of control Till there was nothing left to burn And nothing left to prove
turn against 